for me, the humanity of what it is that we do and the first thoughts that we have towards creating a new endeavor or thinking about a new experience or a product, it's really distilling it down, being reductive, breaking it down to the most simplest forms, and then figuring out, does it feel innately human? Hi, everyone. I'm Amy Devers, and this is Clever. Today, I'm talking to Anna Ariola Canada. Whether that name means anything to you or not, her work has definitely meant something to you. It's impossible to gauge just how powerfully and ubiquitously Anna has impacted our lives and culture through her work, influence, and creativity. So buckle up. This one is a wild ride through the worlds of tech and design from the early, early days of the internet through the advent of mobile computing to the forefront of ethical AI. Anna has been there and been a key architect the whole way. Professionally speaking, Anna is an artificial intelligence and machine learning product specialist. Practically speaking, Anna is an autodidact with a growth mindset that has propelled her through animation, graphic design, information and interaction design, hardware and product design, product management, entrepreneurship, UI UX, research, strategy, leadership, and advocacy. Anna's career trajectory is absolutely bananas. From Adobe and creating the first emoji to Apple where she was the product line manager for design of the original iPhone, to being the head of hardware design at the now infamous Theranos. If you've read Bad Blood or seen the TV series The Dropout, you know that Anna famously called out Elizabeth Holmes on unethical activity and quit on the spot, taking her whole team with her. To innovative products and Sony's ubiquitous UX to setting the tone and developing frameworks for the ethics around AI at the majors, including Samsung, Meta Facebook, and Microsoft where she also contributed meaningfully to the partnership on AI. And now she's a managing director at IDEO Tokyo. Anna is also a queer Latin mother of four, a fierce proponent of empathy-driven and human-centered design, a passionate advocate for diversity and inclusion in the tech industry, and for global intersectionality in the data sets that inform the AI and ML that will impact us all. Anna has been right there on the ground floor of the most critical technological flashpoints of modern culture. When we started this conversation, she joked that she's speaking to me from the future. At the time, I thought she was referring to Tokyo's time zone being 14 hours ahead of mine. But now, I know it's because Anna is always ahead of her time. Here's Anna. Hi, I'm Anna. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and she, her, hers. I currently live in Tokyo, where we just moved recently, uh, formerly a resident of Kyoto, Japan. And I'm currently the managing director of IDEO Tokyo. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, clever friends. If you'll be in New York City this month for Design Week, I want you to come to the Emerging Designer Showcase. It's at the Javits Center during ICFF on the main stage, Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Think of it kind of like lightning round mini critiques plus professional speed dating all rolled into one. And it's genuinely entertaining. Here's how it works. On stage, five rising design talents will each present their work to a group of illustrious industry professionals for real talk advice and critical feedback. And for better or worse, this all happens in front of a live audience. We've hand-selected a phenomenal group of designers for this year's show, and we have a star-studded lineup of very discerning industry pros who will be up there with them. The Emerging Designer Showcase is presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Again, that's Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. at ICFF at the Javits Center. You can register to attend for free at icff.com with our special promo code D-A-P-M-C-L-E-V-E-R. See you there. That's what you currently are doing, but you have done so much before now. I can't wait to hear all about it. But, you know, I always really like to go back to the very beginning. So, can you talk to me about your childhood, your family dynamic, your hometown, things that made an impression on your young creative mind? Oh, absolutely. So I was born in Hollywood, California, raised over the Hollywood Hills in the Valley. So a Valley girl in North Hollywood. I'm a child of first-generation immigrants. So I'm second-generation immigrant. My grandfather and grandmother along with their children, undocumented, immigrated into America from Mexico. And we settled in the Los Angeles area. And so growing up in LA, as far back as I can remember, like it's never been one set of a community that I found myself in. I found myself in pretty much not only the Latina community within the the Mexican-American Chicana community of Los Angeles, in particular the San Fernando Valley, but also really mixed with huge swaths of Filipinas, with second, third, sometimes fourth generation Japanese Americans during that period, Jewish American, folks from the Middle East. And the valley is very diverse. The circle of which my community was comprised of was also various different ethnicities and cultural backgrounds. And I think one of the earliest memories of something that definitely pushed me towards this direction that I find myself in now working at the edge in the future, but grounded very presently in in the impactful now, would have to go back to sixth grade. And there was a television show, this episodic soap opera for kids. And it was a cartoon. The name of it was called Robotech. And every week the episode was different. It was very like people died. 
which was new for, for kids. It's like, wow, for our hero just yeah. got killed off. And um, oh my God. And that really sparked my interest in mechanical engineering because they were showing things in that series that have never been done in the Western world. They were showing complex aviation mechanical drawings that were animated in explicit detail, unfolding and creating these robot forms. Wow. That later I would learn are called mecha. Uh, and later I would know that that genre is called anime before the Western world even knew what anime was. And Right. So for context, are we talking 70s, 80s? This is 1984. And so it had just come out in Japan on television and they had got the rights and they had released it in America. And so seeing this was like, what is this genre? Like, wh- who are these artists that are creating this amazing content. Oh, and by the way, as a kid, it's like there's toys. Interesting. So I did a lot of self-active digging and found out where I can really dig deep into this. And that's where I ended up falling off the cliff in terms of discovery and understanding like that there's so many interesting things that are not in the Western media or Western culture that are coming from Japan at this period. Movies and direct-to-video animations that really informed my aesthetic really informed my fascination for the language and the culture. And so later when I was in high school, I did an internship at a studio called Film Roman. And Film Roman was based in the Valley and they were the animation studio that won the contract away from Klaski Chupo that was of Rugrats fame that originally did the first season of The Simpsons. Later, Film Roman took over The Simpsons and I was an intern on The Simpsons doing storyboards, cleaning up storyboards, and doing production-level work for seasons three and four. That's fun. <laughs> yeah, that was really neat. And that that actually got me into the professional side of animation and sharing what I knew and what I had been learning also to the animation community, where a lot of friends at that time were working at Walt Disney Feature Animation. And, and they secretively, I hate to say this, but like, A lot of the people that were working on Beauty and the Beast and Little Mermaid, my friends at that period, had the art of Miyazaki books in their desk. (laughs) So this is like 1988, 1989. No one's saying that Disney's copying Tezuka Osama that did Kimbo the White Lion um, (laughs) that turned it to Lion King, but they were heavily influenced by it. And so, uh, which is probably why later in, in our lives, they ended up buying Miyazaki Studio here at Studio Ghibli to be part of the Disney family. But anyway, just as before I was able to graduate from high school, I was also ahead of my educations because I had skipped a grade early on in, in elementary school. I knew that this was something I wanted to do, or at least try to do professionally. Uh, and I thought that the animation industry in Japan would be as amazing and as awesome as it was in the Western world and still is in the Western world. So I ended up packing up my stuff by myself and moving out to Japan. And that started a 35-year journey of going back and forth. I do want to go back to your youthful years because you skipped a grade. We didn't really talk about that, but it sounds like you were incredibly, let's say, ambitious with learning from a very young age. Does that ring true? I, I was ambitious with regards to the sciences and from the liberal arts perspective back in elementary school. Like I was struggling with things that later in life after having my own children that I realized were that are now superpowers, but were challenges for me. So like I have four kids. 
the oldest and my my middle child were tested when they were in elementary school in San Francisco and they were diagnosed with dyslexia and dysgraphia, which is hereditary. And that meant that I also struggled with dyslexia and dysgraphia way early on before it was ever diagnosable, before even probably even had had a name for it. And I found through life and pushing and perseverance that I was able to create coping mechanisms and solutions that would help me solve some of the focus and some of the understanding and learning how to learn in different ways that fit my brain. Wow. And so that's a little bit of a background as it relates to, yeah, skipping that grade. Well, I think dyslexia and dysgraphia are superpowers, but then also the coping mechanisms and your ability to sort of adapt and find your way to learn in the way that you needed to learn also sounds like a superpower. And your home dynamic, are you getting support from your parents and are they feeling the creativity of you becoming something that you might want to pursue? Yeah. So I remember when my parents being immigrants, they they were like all in working and doing everything they could to provide for myself. I was an only child. I do have a stepsister, but we're very far apart in age. And I really consider myself still to be an only child. And I remember that work ethic at a very early age rubbing off on me, seeing my parents go to work before the sun came up. And then later when I was in elementary school, my father and mother decided to go into a small business. They uh, went into becoming a purveyor of really high-end meats, like a high-end butchery and produce, a small little corner. It was like a high-end bodega, but they really focus on the quality and the heritage of the meats in the local LA area. That unfortunately caused me to be dragged into the family business at a very early age. And so I I remember building that work ethic. Um, Later in life, I would have to go through many years of therapy to undo that work ethic of working through holidays and, you know, working late into the night. But, But that definitely paid its dividends. It paid its way forward to get me to where I am today and that that drive and the fire that now we call hustle uh, in an entrepreneurial context that really just, you turn it into a game. You find ways to not make it monotonous and not make it like a grind, but like to gamify it. And yeah, that's the, that's that's one of the biggest takeaways. And my parents were loving. They, they saw that I had curiosity and fascination into things that they didn't understand. Like I remember, I talked about when I discovered uh, that series, which is called Macross, by the way, now known as Robotech in America. Um, they took me to a conference and okay. they had these like pop-up conferences where they would show like the movies and the videos in Japanese with no subtitles and conference hall to sell stuff. And And I remember my father telling me later that he felt really weird taking me to this conference because it was unusual and unlike anything that he had ever been to. And, you know, and he had gone to some conferences, like he was a coin collector and this and that. So he knew a little bit about kind of subculture, nerd culture. Mm -hmm. Later in life, my oldest was really into My Little Pony and they wanted to go to a My Little Pony conference that was also AKA pseudo sort of a furries gathering. And so when (laughs) I took them to the conference, I felt like my parents actually, I was like, whoa, this is how my parents must have felt when they took me to my first Japanese animation <laughs> conference. 
I got it. I got to be cool with this. I got to be okay with it. I'm a mom. I'm supporting my child that loves this genre. So yeah. (laughs) So it was a good childhood. I definitely was loved. It sounds like it. It also sounds like you had sort of a variety of experiences. You had taken us through your interest in animation or anime and your move to Japan, which, all right, where's the bravery come from? When I was in high school, and again, I was into anime. Again, people didn't know what it was. And I'd bring these magazines that were all in Japanese. People would try to like pick on me, bully me. But I was able to defend myself, protect myself. And I think that from an early age, my instinct was telling me, if you love something, go all in and follow it till you have a constant full stream of it that you could satiate yourself from. And that might be a store where you know you can buy the stuff from or finding out a particular artist that might have storyboarded or technically directed a thing, a TV show or a movie to learn about it. And I think it was that deep diving, which is also one of my coping mechanisms early on, which is if I wanted to learn or get proficient at a given subject, I would have to go very, very deep. And I'd have to go deep in a way where I just couldn't be book smart. I had to like find my own means to figure out what was the topic, what was the subject that was being taught to me? How did I comprehend it in a way where I could do recall? Because otherwise I'd just forget it. Mm-hmm. And I think that combined with being part of the family business and learning about that side of entrepreneurship and what it means to like always you know, take care of the community that gives their time to be part of your business to taking care of your loved ones and, you know, being Mexican American, my family had always had the saying blood is thicker than anything. And then being able to take care of your family uh, and your, and and then later in life, your chosen family, your, your friends and loved ones. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that to me, I think was part of the early when the flame was lit for that. Thank you for giving me so much detail around your childhood. It's always so helpful to help me understand all of the ways that you've evolved into being who you are now. So take us to Japan. What did you pivot to? And what survival skills were kicking in for you at that time? So during that period, I had a friend of mine who was two years senior from high school that was also living in Japan, which is one one of the strengths that gave me the at least know that I would probably be okay by moving here because I had a network. And I ended up moving with him to the Japan seaside town known as Kanazawa, Ishikawa Prefecture, Kanazawa. And it's now known as the sister city of Kyoto. And at that point, when I moved there, there were only five foreigners that were living in the entire city. And I was one of them. Five. Yeah, this is in 1990. Like there were not a lot of foreigners living in Japan per se. Okay. And he was a former aspiring art center high school grad that ended up also moving to Japan and just ended up starting his own design agency. And I worked with him there to sort of get that off the ground, doing early on brand and visual graphic design that later in life I would pick up and move forward into a profession, a discipline called information design that now pretty much we would say is interaction design. Yeah. That's that's how I made that pivot. And I made the pivot because I knew that animation wasn't going to be sustaining. I did try one last time a little bit later. So I, I ended up working for a Japanese animation company here called Animego that was doing subtitles for legitimate animation distribution with acquired rights in the Western world. 
And it was there that I came across an opportunity to go to work for Wired Magazine Japan. And it was at Wired Magazine. So at this point, we were using Macintosh's Quadra 850 AVs to do a lot of the homebrew digital subtitling for the animation work. And I learned a lot more about platform, especially the Apple platform and the software solutions that were available then, even some basic hackery. And that led me into getting a role uh, into the development and design of modern software at Wired which was publishing a series of CD-ROM titles that they had acquired from the UK by an artist called Dorling Kindersley. And these titles were being culturally localized. So I got to learn a lot about ethnography and cultural localization that we would call design uh, anthropology uh, these days. And while I was doing that at Wired, we were launching the first few issues of Wired Japan before Conte Nast ever owned it. And that got me connected in the industry as a whole and learning a lot more about how to go to press at scale with a lot of the publishing industry. And it was through that experience and knowing that taking these CD-ROM titles and the interactivity that there was a whole industry here and there was going to be a portfolio of software by the big companies that were going to be building these experiences and that led me eventually leaving Wired and going to work for Macromedia Japan as one of the founding members of Macromedia. And for those that don't know who Macromedia is, Macromedia was an acquired company by Adobe, but long before the acquisition took place, it was a company that really created interaction design. It created CD-ROMs, interactive DVDs. It created web medium um, that was called Director. That eventually evolved into a product called Flash that for many decades was a predominant animation interactive media choice for many on the internet. Wow. So as the internet is growing up around you, you're right there building it. Yeah. Being in the thick of it, seeing how creators here in Japan and, and big software companies like ourselves, like we're able to build solutions and find solutions that never prior existed and creating them, bringing them to the market with the partnership and help of the people we were building them for, which was really rewarding. What was the the reward for you? Was it satisfying your curiosity? Was it the people you were working with? Was it putting your problem solving skills to work or was it all of it? The biggest satisfaction for me was in the development process, which was truly a co-development process with the community designing for people like myself was seeing their reaction in real time. We would typically hold focus groups. And when we would go to a focus group, we would like hear them about their frustrations of existing defects, bugs that are in the software, or aspirations of future feature development and you know design asks. And, and a lot of times we'd have an engineer with us and we'd be able to hack up a semi-functional version of what they had just said in a matter of minutes. I go, do you mean like this? And we turn the... <laughs> We turn the laptop around wow. and show them and they'd be like, yeah, that's amazing. We'll put it in the next version. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> that's so cool. Okay. From Macromedia, how long were you there? I was at Macromedia for about two and a half, three years. Okay. And then you go to Meta Design Agency. Are you still living full-time in Japan? Or are you coming back and forth? Back and forth. I went to work for Meta because I was inspired by Eric Speakerman. At that time, I'd been a, a fan of Stop Stealing Sheep, 
which a lot of us live by. And I, I still highly recommend that book for anyone that's interested or fascinated by type or typography. And that I wanted to see what it was like on the agency side from the consulting side. And one of the things that I did miss uh, that caused me to eventually leave and go back to one of the larger companies was budget. It wasn't a life work balance thing. It was more just being able to have budget to do things where you didn't feel like you needed to possibly, you know, redline your energy uh, to get something out and done. A lot of people thrived off of that adrenaline, as you probably have spoken to, like that work from the agency side. And life-work balance wasn't necessarily a thing in the industry back back in that period. <laughs> no, no, it wasn't. Uh, and, and so I ended up deciding to leave Meta and going to work for Adobe. And at this point, Adobe had not acquired Macromedia yet. And one of the last projects that I worked on at Macromedia was the creation of Dreamweaver 1.0. It was the first like really rich visual WYSIWYG authoring tool for, for the web at that time. And one of the aspirations for us as the product design team in designing that particular piece of software was a German company by the name of GoLive Systems. And they had a product called Cyber Studio that at the point Adobe had just acquired. And they were they had come and they had asked me would I be interested in helping lead the future development of what Adobe would call their first professional web authoring tool. They already had had PageMill and SiteMill, which were early WYSIWYG authoring tools, but this was the first like competitor from an Adobe perspective to go and compete with the hand coders that were lovers and loyalists to Dreamweaver. And I went into doing that at Adobe. And this is t- talking about the growth mindset and wanting to learn something new. At this point, I moved from actually doing product design into product management. And learning about the business side, really sort of grassrooting my own first MBA of how do you build and research and understand the total adjustable market for the needs of a given multi-million dollar investment and not knowing you're going to reap those rewards until you start selling it. So that was really fun. Uh, I, I didn't think that I'd be so excited about business until I had moved to Adobe and moved into this new role. What do you think did excite you? Was it a little bit like you were adding more parameters to your creative project? At the time, I don't think we used this word, but it's definitely a buzzword these days. It was it was like defining and understanding that there are metrics, these floating data points that are above everything in the world, that if you can quantify and classify and, and bring into visibility, you then can tie them to justification of why something should be funded or why something should be built or why someone needs something that isn't in existence yet. And I think that part of the research and development, along with the stuff that I talked about during Macromedia, which was the co-creation, the focus groups, um, and, and building these experiences, I found so fascinating in that aspect of my time at, at Adobe. Getting those data points, is that also an extension of design anthropology? It is now, yeah, absolutely. And I think that from an Adobe perspective, they deeply cared about the markets that they were operating in and the languages that they had their software available. And it wasn't just forcing a function of, here's a Western feature set that happens to have a a GUI string of German uh, or Japanese. It was more like, what specific features can we add that are unique to this market? And so like German as an example, which ha- which is used in the, the development software development world as a baseline string set for making sure when you do UI design for the interface, 
that you have long text fields that can be adaptable for very long German words. And that's sort of one way you could approach accessible design, especially from a linguistic perspective. And, and then from a Japanese perspective, which was an emerging market at that time, and they knew, well, Adobe knew, and the world was coming to know that it wasn't necessarily about interactivity anymore. It was about mobile computing. It was going to be about mobile experiences. And so at that point, Japan had the world's most technologically advanced telephony platform here in the country. They also had the most advanced phones. So they were doing 3G video conferencing built into their phones, and they had a, a, an interactive platform called iMode that was based in compact HTML. And no one, no one had a solution for authoring this except for hand coding. And it was one of my aha moments. I was like, what if we built a GUI system for this? Emoji came from iMode, by the way. So like, we have Emoji because of what Docomo did and how Docomo created Emoji, which is what the word originated from, from iMode platform. Wow. And so I created the world's first professional Emoji palette that allowed you to have a visual representation of all the available Emoji at that time and you would be able to click it and insert the code, the syntax into your source code. So when you're building an, a CHTML page, you would have a richer experience than just text and hyperlinks. And this caught on in Europe. And that led to the adoption of Emoji in Europe uh, and the evolution of the Nokia Series 60 platform of devices and Sony Ericsson platform that became the predecessor to what eventually would become mobile compute and got Apple very interested in the space during that period. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hey, Clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. And there is a transition to Apple. What made that happen for you? So while at Adobe, I was part of a two-group team uh, that was looking into how could we strengthen and secure Adobe's position in the future of authoring, especially for Mm -hmm. pervasive computing and mobile. And there were two camps. I was part of a camp that was focused on open source because we believe that the open source approach to co-development of features and roadmaps was better than a closed proprietary system. And the other camp that was inside the M&A team was focused on acquiring Macromedia and acquiring Macromedia specifically for Flash. And so we ended up losing out, unfortunately, at that period of time, but our gut instincts were spot on. Mm-hmm. And many of us ended up all leaving and eventually finding our way, most of us found our way to back at Apple to work on various different components and aspects of the operating system or iPhone itself. And so that's basically how 
I came to know uh, one infinite loop in Cupertino, or as I like to say, Supertino, uh, <laughs> where Apple's based and got to be part of an amazing multitude of projects and got to know some amazing, wonderfully beautiful, creative people that some are still there, some have gone off and done other things. So that was my journey into Apple. Um, you had a smile on your face when you were talking about the wonderful people that you worked with at Apple. Was that a really good time in your life? It was. It was also a very hard time. Like like a lot of us worked really, probably some of the hardest that we've ever worked in our career because we were so passionate about what we were doing. And we were also trying to uh, please Steve and and the other executives that were supporting us in our endeavor. But it was also a time of incredible growth, learning about graphics compute technologies and hardware acceleration and and bringing typography and smooth animations into the fold, which was the particular project that I was working on. It was a, a fusion of like digital graphics animations with operating system development with tactile human interaction output. And so the platform aspect of the iPhone that I helped create with my team was called Cassoulet. And it was a combination of a technology we created called Core Animation combined with what you all know as Safari, which is the WebKit engine that really brought UIKit into a modern context. And UIKit is still used. A lot of those technologies of fluidity, high frame rate, very yummy in and out interaction snippets are still used today in the Apple Vision Pro. UI kit is living very strong inside of that. I'm not in the tech world. So you're speaking another language to me, but I find it so intoxicating. But at the same time, I'm really struck by just how much your work has filtered out into society and affected me, everyone, so fundamentally. I mean, that's pretty exciting. <laughs> Hindsight, right? So yeah. a couple things that we worked on, we didn't know would have this level of a societal impact. Yeah, A lot of us have talked about this, that we're part of the old team. It's like we never knew that our mobile phones would create autonomy and connectivity and opportunity in the ways that it has become. But at the same time, it's also, from an ethical perspective, one of our issues in our lives. Like the mobile phone has caused an attack on human cognition with the notifications. And, and now that's being addressed in a lot of the more modern instances of Android and, and iPhone. But we had no idea. All we were really striving for was like, I want to be able to pull my phone out. And it's what we tested against is, can I read the New York Times in my pocket? Wow. So were you still at Apple when the first, I know you were on the original iPhone design team, but were you still there when it launched? I had just left when it launched. I was in the crowd with my team at Moscone when Steve pulled it out of his pocket. Wow. And so I got to celebrate with everyone. But I was on another endeavor. Do you want to tell me about that? <laughs> oh, Yeah. <laughs> That person I worked with is now in jail. <laughs> <laughs> so 
some of you may have watched the Disney Plus television series called The Dropout, and I believe there's still a movie coming out soon from Apple's studios based on the book Bad Blood. But I was at Theranos, and I left Apple just before the iPhone came out, uh, along with a handful of dear friends and colleagues to join a biotech startup that was set to disrupt the clinical testing industry which was billions of dollars and still is billion, hundreds of billions of dollars. And at the same time, build a path forward for what then was known as Medicine 2.0, the future of healthcare, especially personalized healthcare and, and private healthcare from the comfort of your own home. And I had a fateful discussion with one of my friends uh, who was on the board at... Theranos, Avi Tavanian, and he had asked if it would if it would be of interest for me to work on something where I could again grow, learn to lead industrial design, mechanical, electrical engineering, along with operating system experiences. And I decided that to learn a little bit more. So I had a meeting with Elizabeth. And that very first meeting, we were in Palo Alto, and she she's done a lot of harm to the world. But she's pretty genuine in terms of her energy. And that energy, the the closest thing I could say, it's the reality distortion field that Steve created. Mm. And and I think a lot of entrepreneurs have to have, having founded my own hardware startups, those that are entrepreneurial in nature have to create that field of energy. I won't call it a reality distortion field because that's bad. It can be bad. It could cause you to not see the truth. Mm-hmm. But it, you create this energy field around yourself that to a degree is your force field, it's your armor, that allows you to take your vision and your drive forward and it protects you in that journey. And Elizabeth had that energy, had that enthusiasm, had that had that drive. And at that time, I, the way she had described her own upbringing, having gone and lived in China to study Chinese and learning about nanofluidics and and the medical engineering sciences, I thought was super fascinating. And I saw a lot of myself in her. And the rest is history. We kind of know what happened. And it's well documented in the New York Times bestselling book, as well as on television. It's soon maybe a movie as well. Yes. Okay. So we know what happened four months after starting there with your team. You realized that shady, unethical shit was going down. and People were dying. Yeah. That's awful. Like fourth stage oncology patients, University of Tennessee. Yeah, it's, Ugh. it was pretty gnarly. Not many of us have been in that position. Can you describe for me what it felt like emotionally, physiologically, when you realize this whole endeavor is toxic and you need to do something? When I first heard about this, I was in a bit of disbelief that how could this possibly be happening? And it was brought to my attention by now publicly acknowledged Adam Vollmer, who was our mechanical engineering lead at the time for the Edison device, who had disclosed it to me and asked me if I could bring it to Elizabeth's attention and see why we're doing this and if I could get her to stop it. And it was in that moment when hearing Elizabeth try to justify what was happening and saying that we were all going to become rich and we would all benefit from this. And this is just a, a speed bump in, in, on the road of, of great discovery and development. 
I think if anyone's in a situation like that, and this was the first foray into setting my my gut instinct, my baseline for for unethical behavior, is that you know it's not right. I think we know this from just the way we're brought up by our parents and we know that it's it shouldn't be happening to the individuals that are being affected and impacted by this. And you see the disgust and disdain from Edmund Koo in in the dropout on Disney Plus. And like he and I are friends. And like when we were commiserating about that many years later, it's like it's still it still brings back a very visceral feeling uh, inside of us. Yeah. And I think that you if anyone experiences that, which I hope many of you do not. But it is a learning moment, and I think you fundamentally are changed forever by going through something like that. And while it is incredibly painful and will have a a long-lasting impact both on you psychologically and emotionally, I think you can turn that into a superpower. And it's like Malcolm Gladwell talks about in his book Blink about honing your gut instinct. It's it becomes an early warning system that later in life I also discovered throughout my journey. And I know you're doing a lot of work now around AI and ethics involving AI. And we'll talk more deeply about that, but it it does seem like you've been able to convert this into a superpower and now you're applying that superpower. It's the ethicality. It's 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 the fear and the hope and the aspiration that I think is is part of not only the work that's happening in AI right now, but it could be anything. It could be automotive design. Like, are you designing a future uh, vehicle that may have a defect? And if that defect is overlooked and you still want to ship that that platform, it's like it'll have impact on somebody. Aviation, same thing. Food industry, same thing. It's, yeah, it, 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 it I think ethics touches everything. Yeah. Especially AI. <laughs> well, yes, because then AI filters out and touches everything. And sooner than we can even comprehend, it will be being deployed in all of those industries you just mentioned and and daily life. And if it's not ethical in its essence, then it's just going to compound and exponentially magnify the unethical. 100%. Okay, but you're a techno optimist, so we're not going to we're not going <laughs> to be alarmist right now. So the the Theranos experience, I mean, it's really powerful to see you dramatized in the dropout and to make such a badass statement in the moment. And you end up on the right side of that history. But I understand it's traumatic and you've you've been working through it ever since. 13 years I was unable to talk about it. Oh my god. Because we were under NDA. No. Silencing somebody makes it so hard to process. Just let that sit in for a moment. 13 years <gasps> until the first insider, what I call Generation 3 at Theranos, leaked out. And then we were slowly feeling confident we could say and talk about the experiences that that we had lived. Oh, my gosh. And still, even up until the point when she was convicted, a lot of us were in fear. Like, what type of retribution would she have towards any of us that were now I, I self-identifying in our own sharing of our lived experiences. <sighs> wow. Well, there's that bravery that kicked in again, along with your gut instincts and your ethics. And I'm glad you're taking care of yourself. 13 years of silence, though, is trauma in and of itself because it yeah. stunts the processing. It does. So I'm sorry for that. It's all good. During that 13-year period, there was a group of us 
that would meet from time to time during the point when we were all silenced and muzzled. And we would talk through stuff about what we're hearing and what's going on over there still. We would get together across from Palo Alto High. There was a restaurant there. We'd have these meals and kind of share updates with one another. So we, we at least were conducting individual therapy amongst ourselves. Okay, good. I, lo- I love a tight support network. <laughs> Indeed. Shared experience. Okay, so from there, you go to Sony, then you become a founder, entrepreneur, 0360, mono-ohm, which yeah. I, think I think I handled an early prototype of the Runcible. You might have. We, we received an award from Cool Hunting back when we were getting ready to ship it, uh, and it was pretty well it was it was amazingly well received and that's an unfortunate story some former pre-apple apple and post-apple associates of mine friends of mine got together and we wanted to do another hardware startup and the thinking was how could we create something that allowed us to keep our heads up in the real world and stay attuned and intent to those that we're having a, a meaningful relationship conversation with versus like the smartphones, like calling, causing us to pull our heads down and go into that death scroll. <laughs> and we had some amazing backers for this particular piece of hardware. And there's photos on my LinkedIn profile, if anyone wants to see in the main headers there, but it's like this beautiful, it's like the size of a compact and it feels like a river stone. And it was an heirloom electronic and it had natural material for the outer housing. We were using woods and metals and, and ceramic outer housing. It had the state-of-the-art Sony image sensor that was in the iPhone at the time was inside the camera. And it had this delightful round user experience that you literally physically would rotate the device in a circular motion that would allow you to zoom in and zoom out on photographs and, and use the circular interaction to scroll throughout the operating system Wow! for the device. But unfortunately... um. It was ahead of its time. We were ready to go to market with it. We had the backing and funding from KDDI AU here in Japan that was going to be part of their design series line, of which they'd worked previously with Mark Newsom on the original Talbi Talk line and then Naoto Fukasawa on the Infobar. And we were going to be the third phone in that platform. And I was super honored that what we had created was going to be part of that portfolio, especially yes. being a fan of Japan. And Google was in the midst of getting ready to release their original Wear OS for the Android platform. And they were going to introduce a watch. And they saw us releasing a phone with this with a round display. And we had made a, de- a decision during the development process to move away because of a technical difficulty using Firefox operating system to use Android open source, which is Android core base, but not the full Android stack that you would find in a pixel that has access to the Play Store because there's obligations you have to agree to to use Maps and and Play and all the other additional Android apps. We were going to build a lot of those applications ourselves. And when Google found out about that, because they were getting ready to to announce Wear, they asked us if we would switch to Wear versus Android open source. And we were like, we don't want this to be a tethered accessory. We want this to be a full independent mobile phone. Yeah. And because we were going to release it uh, to great fanfare in Europe and in Japan, and they ended up coming in and strong-arming our manufacturing partner, Kyocera, at the time that was going to produce the device for us. And we didn't want them to lose their their white label phone production for Google. And so we ended up pulling out of developing the device and having to 
essentially bow to Google. Uh, later, they were brought before the Japanese Ministry of Information and Technology under unbecoming business practices that they also faced in, in Europe. And so in a way, karma was, was served in the end, but we ended up having to shut down the company. And still today, when I put that prototype into someone's hand and, or I talk about it, I get the reaction you just had right now, which is so meaningful to me. And I want to say thank you. <laughs> I wish it existed. Yeah. Never say never, right? Yeah, never okay. say never. <laughs> Let's put it out into the universe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so from there, you go to Samsung, Meta, Microsoft, and now you're at IDEO. Do you want to tell me about that arc? At a high level, again, following that theme of growth mindset, moving into Samsung, I wanted to learn how do you build an amazing platform and experience that's never been done before in such a rapid amount of time. And we created the Frame Television platform in six months. That was amazing and growing right there. And I yeah. learned and I cut my teeth early on with some basic AI work there with natural language and speech technology with the Bixby acquisition. And so when I moved to Facebook, I was able to further deepen that knowledge, working very closely with the Facebook AI research team, now known as Meta AI, and the Applied Machine Learning team, which was the AI surface development team that built AI across all of the products, Instagram, WhatsApp, Big Blue, aka Facebook, the main app. And it was during my time at Facebook that Cambridge Analytica took place. And the data breaches uh, with the personal information uh, that led to the 2016 uh, election fiasco. Right. And at that point, I wanted to find a company in the world that was doing ethical, amazing work in AI. And that's what led me to Microsoft. And honestly, like my time at Microsoft and getting to see and, and understand how Satya works and the leadership team there, and, and it, it was such a growing and amazing period of my experience. I, I recently gave a, a, a talk here with the president of Figma Japan, and one of the questions that was asked to me, like, if I could name the most favorite company I've ever worked for and why, and I couldn't just name one, I named a couple, and I put them in order, and I, I put Sony as being the first, before Microsoft, actually. Uh, and Microsoft being number two and Apple being three. And I mean, the reason why I put Sony first is that they are truly craftspeople and they care about design and execution. You can see that in the new Honda Sony collaboration car. And Microsoft would be number one because they do amazing work with Surface and the operating system and everything that they do. But I, I put Microsoft number two, which is a very low number one, because I really love the culture and I love the community and I love the ethicality of, of how they, everyone operates. They truly bring to heart the values that represent Microsoft and, and Satya asks everyone to espouse those particular values. And I honestly would still be at Microsoft if it wasn't for during COVID moving to Japan and then working kind of bonker hours, 3.30 in the morning until 12 noon. And oh man, after having played a role in the birth of my, my son, my littlest son, and coming back off of maternity leave, I was like, I maybe want to find something local. Yeah. And so that's, that's why I find myself today at IDEO. And a li little bit bitter, bittersweet story there is the right place at the wrong time, per se. It's like 
there was a global decision that was made to shut down IDEO Tokyo, which has a beautiful heritage all the way going back to Naoto Fukasawa, who was the original creator of IDEO Tokyo. Oh. We're shutting down the studio here and we're moving a lot of that work over to North America, but that's also opened up the next chapter. It's like, what and how might I and the team that I'll be working with find a way to uplift Japanese entrepreneurs and craftspeople and designers here and help them become more known at a greater scale. Because a lot of the times these individuals that are making these these objects or these experiences don't speak English and haven't had the ability to to share their journey and to share their experiences with the Western world. And that's something that uh, I'm going to take a lot of heart in with the team that I'm building what will come in 2024 with. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to, to sharing that with, with the rest of the world. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So in terms of your creative process, I'll give you sort of a multiple choice and you can talk about which one you want to go into in detail. I know that you have said that you start your creative projects with a kind of ethnography or design anthropology, and that all your work is grounded in humanity and empathy. And I love that. But what does that mean for you? Like, what is the starting point for you? Yeah, let's unpack that. Let me talk a little bit about why now is so important, especially in the age of AI. So as we just discussed before IDEO, uh, while I was at Microsoft, I was shipping artificial intelligence uh, and really working on building the future of computing as a service for Gen Z and the alpha generation. You know, this is really critical because they are the future. Yeah, They're the ones that are going to take society and take our planet forward. And their demands and expectations are very different than ours. Like They believe in a world where experiences are literally going to be play, pause, and resume on a magnitude of surfaces. In some cases, not even having a surface. It's ambient computing. It's, it's, it's spoken. Th- think the movie Her, right? Mm-hmm. Which is why I find what I will be doing in 2024 so exciting. It's like building upon that and having been hands-on, working and leading so often in my career from the edge for the past 29 plus years, shipping experiences that are beloved around the world. It's being able to talk to individuals with wide ranging backgrounds and disciplines, whether it's machine learning and research to chip design, to mechanical software and hardware engineering, to design anthropology, to product design, to industrial design and CMF and, and, and pull that all together and be able to help consult with and help promote others that are doing this work in the form of almost like a platform whisperer. Like I I really Mm -hmm. truly feel that that is a superpower of mine. That's a good name for it. That aspiration is to guide and explore and build and ship and, and measure these experiences and these products and future services that really fundamentally drive behavioral change throughout the world. 
And that's if I come back to my grounding principles, human, simple, and authentic. For me, the humanity of what it is that we do and the first thoughts that we have towards creating a new endeavor or thinking about a new experience or a product, it's really distilling it down, being redactive, breaking it down to the most simplest forms to that like even less than an MVP, and then figuring out, does it feel innately human? And I always use the analogy of designing tableware, a spoon. You know, a spoon is one of the simplest, most beautiful crafted objects in the world to me because it's incredibly intimate. It's something you you sustain your 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 yourself with and you put it into your body and you feel safe as you eat with the spoon. And then from a simplistic perspective, it's like being reductive and getting it down to just what matters. And, and you could always be additive to it, but that redaction is really critical. And then being authentic. And I think having a unique point of view and being strong and convicted with that point of view, I think is is a superpower that many people need to learn. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean to say that every idea you have will be original, especially now with AI and, and Gen AI. Everything is a remix, but it's your unique perspective, point of view, your lens that makes it authentic. And no one else in the world had that aha moment or that aspect of it. And so that human, simple, authentic aspect of the creation process really kind of brings everything full circle. And at every aspect, you're thinking about sketching, ideating, getting feedback and testing it, and then throwing things out and putting things in and doing that that information loop over and over again. And it's a traditional product development mindset, but you just have to truly make sure you do it. Because mm-hmm. like, if you have a, a point of view on something that, that's in your heart, that means you'll have a unique point of view on someone else's thing. And feedback is so important. The art of crit. Mm-hmm. And being able to receive crit, but also give constructive crit is so lacking in this industry today. Oh. Um, and it's something, please make sure that the future talent that is coming out of RISD and other wonderful institutions, we need to make sure that authenticity, point of view, and, and the culture and the science of crit is so important. So... Ethical AI is something that you talk a lot about. And and one of the frameworks that I've heard you discuss that is an important way to look at how AI should be developed is global intersectionality. Can you unpack that a little bit? And in doing so, can you also help us understand why it is that you're a techno-optimist? First and foremost, intersectionality. So often, especially in technology companies, they love to use the term and they love to talk about inclusivity or accessibility. And in the aspects of doing so, we're doing such a disservice to so many other populations and so many other people. And intersectionality for me is truly about building and co-creation or creation for the 3% that is often left out and often continues to be marginalized. And if you design for that 3%, you have the ability to truly ensure you're solving for the 97% and making sure you're addressing age, gender, race, class, sexual orientation, physical and cognitive ability, along with so many other variables that we need to consider when we say intersectional design. 
especially intersectional design as it relates to AI, because so much of the training sets that have been created academically and institutionally in the current big companies are based on models that are not inclusive, that are based on the past. And that's why I love the work that Microsoft is doing, along with OpenAI and some of the other companies. In particular, Partnership on AI has a great foundation where when they're thinking about building toward a future of AGI, artificial general intelligence, they're taking into consideration and making sure they're solving for the existing models and data sets that are there, that they truly are fair, that they are reliable that they do take into consideration privacy and security and intellectual property rights, that they are intersectional and inclusive, and ideally they are transparent, they're open, and the the data sets themselves can be reviewed and peer-reviewed and provide feedback and, and be better for it. And that at the end of the day, there's also accountability for the data sets that are being used. And that if should someone should use something that may cause ill harm for a community, or a population that quick accountability can be taken and it can be uh, rendered in a way that it can be fixed very fast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so for me, the aspect of responsible and ethical AI is so important because it's not just about the hard technical aspects of these experiences and the technologies that are being built, but it's also about a lot of the liberal arts than the sciences that have to be considered. And so anyone that's working in AI today, whether you're an engineer, whether you're a product manager, whether you're a designer, you've got to know more than just about design or engineering or business. You have to think about psychology that's going into the platform you're building. You have to think about the various different modern technologies of computer science. You have to think about the physics and the engineering and the biology, and most importantly, the liberal arts aspect. Because like the way you're going to interact with these future technologies is written now, spoken in the future, and how we write and how we speak and how we give our whole self into these machines is going to be what will come out as a byproduct of that. And yeah. if you don't know liberal arts, if you don't know how to be a critical thinker, if you don't know how to speak well or write well, in many languages and many cultures, it, it could create an output that could be harmful toward a given said population. And then also as an engineer or a, a product manager or a designer, you have to also learn each other's disciplines. You don't have to be deep and an expert in any one of those, but you have to be able to be that T-shaped deep generalist. You can go deep in your, your core expertise, but you have to be able to go wide, talk intelligently, debate intellectually and, and and work collaboratively from the T-shaped perspective across data science and machine learning engineering and research science and design anthropology and creative writing and visual communication and human affordance and interaction and product design and very soon true ambient design, right? Spatial computing, like yeah. We're so close with humane and 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 the AI clip, which is is, is the first foray. And then, as you probably have heard with the discussions last week with Sam Altman, one of the reasons that the board got upset at him is because he's in discussions with Johnny Ive to create some new future AI hardware. <laughs> and they thought it was a disruption of, uh, uh, of his time and focus for open AI. I'm like, oh, there's going to be a lot more interesting hardware on the horizon. So that's exciting for all of us. So yeah, that's that's why I think intersectional design is so important right now in, the, in, in this era of artificial intelligence and artificial general intelligence. How do we all 
demand that as people who aren't in the tech sector, who aren't actually building these products? Everything we just discussed, especially where we find ourselves today with AI and AGI, is that it's moving so fast that it's going to require a lot of heavy emotional lifting from all of us to continually stay up to date with the latest and question with what is coming out and work with one another to rally, to raise visibility towards things that we feel is not appropriate um, or safe for humanity as a whole. And I use the word humanity, but really we need to be thinking about greater than human-centered design. We need to be thinking about planet-centered design. We need to be thinking about what does habitat and uh, the environment with our with our ecosystem of animals and how is that affected by AI. And that's something that came out of the World Design Organization that I w- that I attended and spoke at recently here in Tokyo for the 33rd gathering and that we need to move beyond human-centered design to like true understanding of how ecology and our planet is affected by AI, not just from the carbon aspect, but also what are the experiences that we're creating and how it'll impact other environments. Amen. And in particular, AI, how AI used to optimize fishing and the fisheries around the world. Like, you know, that's just one example that I know that there are some brilliant minds here in Japan that are thinking about that, how to do it sustainably, effectively, and also help promote the furthering of, of the fisheries that, that exist and making sure that populations don't dwindle. And you could say that that could be applied for very many different species yeah. uh, on our planet, uh, along with the climate conditions that we're facing right now. So that gets exciting. I can see your optimism there. A lot of work that's being happening. Yeah. Man, thank you so much for this. I feel like completely enriched and enlightened. And I'm so grateful for this conversation. It's it's been really, really awesome. Thank you. Likewise. Hey, thanks so much for listening. For a transcript of this episode and more about Anna, including links, images of her work, and a bonus Q&A, head to cleverpodcast.com. If you like Clever, we could really use your support. Share Clever with your friends, leave us a five-star rating or a kind review, support our sponsors, and hit the follow or subscribe button in your podcast app so that our new episodes will turn up in your feed. We love to hear from you on LinkedIn, Instagram, and X. You can find us at Clever Podcast, and you can find me at Amy Devers. Please stay tuned for upcoming announcements and bonus content. You can subscribe to our newsletter at cleverpodcast.com to make sure you don't miss a thing. Clever is hosted and produced by me, Amy Devers, with editing by Mark Zurawinski, production assistance from Ilana Nevins and Anushka Stefan, and music by L1011. Clever is a proud member of the Surround Podcast Network. Visit surroundpodcasts.com to discover more of the architecture and design industry's premier shows. This is how my parents must have felt when they took me to my first Japanese animation conference. Chat GPT prompt. Write a compelling podcast intro for Clever with guest Anna Ariola Canada in the style of Amy Devers. Chat GPT's response. They even include upbeat music playing. Hey there, Clever Minds. Welcome back to another exciting episode of Clever, where we dive deep into the world of design, creativity, and innovation. I'm your host, Amy Devers, and today we have a true trailblazer with us, someone whose creativity knows no bounds. Transition sound effect. 
Our guest today is none other than the extraordinary Anna Ariola Canada. She's a visionary in the world of design and technology, and her impact can be felt across a myriad of industries. Anna's not just breaking glass ceilings, she's redesigning the entire blueprint. Background music intensifies. From her groundbreaking work and user experience at some of the biggest tech giants, to her passion for empowering underrepresented voices in the design community, Anna Ariola Canada is a force to be reckoned with. Transition sound effect. Today, we're going to uncover the secrets behind Anna's innovative approach to design the stories that shaped her journey, and the wisdom she's gained along the way. So grab your sketchbooks, your favorite pen, and get ready to be inspired by the one and only Anna Ariola Canada on Clever. Upbeat music fades out. I don't know, man, that was pretty good. I think I might be getting replaced on my own podcast. <laughs> 